Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. If TikTok harms our kids' mental health and schools pay money to help students, does TikTok owe our schools some money? We'll tell you about that Seattle Public Schools lawsuit this week and also a lawsuit claiming that Seattle's graffiti ordinance is unconstitutional and big changes for employees at Starbucks and Microsoft and more all coming up on Week in Review. We've got our panel of journalists with us today, KOW arts and culture reporter Mike Davis. Welcome back, Mike. Hey, Bill. Also, Seattle Times general assignment reporter Amanda Zoe. Welcome back, Amanda. Thanks. It's great to be here. GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis. Welcome back, Mike. Good to see you, Bill. I do see you. I see you because you're six Sitting feet away right from here. me. Yes, and also I'd be able to see you even if I were at home, because we are live streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook, and you just search KUOW Public Radio. Speaking of YouTube and Facebook, mm-hmm. okay, let's get into our top story this week. The public school districts in Seattle and Kent sued the companies behind Facebook and YouTube and TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat. Amanda Zo, you've reported on this story for Seattle Times. On what basis are these school districts suing the social media platforms? Yeah, thanks, Bill. Um, So we all know that all these social media companies have faced increased scrutiny over the last couple of years. We've seen families sort of file personal damage lawsuits, but this is sort of at least from what I'm aware of, and I think the lawyer representing Seattle Public Schools, the first time a school is sort of trying to claim damages. Uh, And they're sort of alleging that, you know, these social media companies, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, they all sort of designed their algorithm to maximize engagement from young people. And then Seattle Public Schools is also pointing out that there's research that links social media use to negative mental health impacts, cyberbullying, anxiety, depression. And they're sort of saying, you know, we've had to expend more resources to address this issue in youth mental health. And we think these social media companies are to blame. Yes, uh, Amanda mentioned um, some research, and Mike Davis, we also saw that whistleblower testify. Yeah, we saw that that whistleblower testify, but even outside of that whistleblower, we saw Mark Zuckerberg have to actually talk about this when there was that study that said that Instagram was having a negative effect on our young girls in our society, and I feel like that was back in 2021, so it's not new. The research is there. We know that the companies also know. I guess my question for Amanda, and I know you may not have this answer just yet, is does all of this amount to an actual lawsuit that they can win in court? Are they going to have to prove that there is like quantifiable data that shows this is the effect and it has cost the school district? I mean, lawsuits sometimes don't prove that a thing actually happened in a weird way. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a good question. Um, You know, the question here is the correlation versus causation question. We know the pandemic and social media use, they're all sort of related with youth mental health. But, you know, what causes what? That's sort of a question for the courts. Uh, I saw in the KUOW story that, you know, they're also talking about that 230 law that's sort of, you know, a test case in terms of how liable social media companies are. Um, So the story seemed to imply that this lawsuit, while it seems very steep for them to win, 
um, they might also just be pointing attention on that other case as well. I want to go to, to Mike Lewis, but you're talking about the federal law that basically shields, that basically says these companies, they're just platforms. They're not responsible. Not a publisher. Not responsible. They're not publishers right. responsible exactly. for the content. Yeah. So so this is what's really interesting about this, I think, from a legal standpoint. Uh, and I <clears throat> spent years covering the original tobacco lawsuits, which means obviously I'm a fairly old guy. But I, when I covered those, and remember, a lot of those were started by then Attorney General Christine Gregoire here in, here in uh, Washington State, and it was considered fairly novel legal theory that these companies would actually have to pay liabilities. They had, the tobacco companies had a history of winning lawsuits about tobacco being, and we know tobacco's uh, liability from a health standpoint, but they finally managed to break through. And so- you have to start somewhere. Does it have legal merit? Well, it doesn't have legal merit until it does, right? And so what the school district is pushing right now is an idea that, one, you can probably find quite a few studies showing a health effect as it relates to social media. And then, two, should there be any financial liability associated with that? This is going to be, I think, a pretty interesting lawsuit because, trust me, if this thing starts moving through and showing some merit, you're going to see every school district in the country jumping in. And then the legal team is going to get fairly substantial because there's going to be an enormous amount of pressure on the social media companies to then respond in some manner uh, how it is that they can operate largely unregulated in this regard. Because remember, we're, the tobacco lawsuits were essentially saying this. You knew it was addictive and you kept pushing your product. So if there's internal studies showing, and all the whistleblowers would say that there are, if there's internal studies showing that the social media companies knew it was ind- uh, addictive to a particular group of people and still pushed the product, that gives them a legal platform for this lawsuit. But Mike Davis, these companies also point out they have taken steps to keep young people safe, to check, check ages, to allow some parental supervision. Yes, yes, they absolutely have. Um, That comes, again, from back in 2021 after we had that whistleblower. It got in front of us. Whistleblower talked to Congress. It actually became a thing. And then, yes, Instagram did claim that they took those steps to make it, quote, unquote, safer. A question that I have that I would throw back at you, Mike Lewis, you're talking about tobacco and you're talking about what they knew and what they didn't know. I think right here with these social media companies, yes, we do know that social media is addictive. We can prove that. Can we prove mental health versus physical health? If I smoke enough cigarettes, I'll die. Uh, You you can look in my body. We know what those physical effects are. What is it going to look like in the court of law to prove what it looks like to impact your mental health? It just doesn't really feel like the law is going to be able to quantify these two things in the same way. Well, I mean, we had lawsuits regarding PTSD, right? And we're talking in many cases with PTSD. We're talking about a mental health situation. So it's not like suing over mental health damages is unprecedented because it isn't. I mean, it's been done successfully in other arenas. The social media one, I think you're raising an interesting point to the extent that we can create a positive link. But remember, the tobacco companies defense, alcohol companies long have defended saying, hey, wait a minute. Everyone who smokes doesn't get lung cancer, right? Everyone who drinks doesn't necessarily become an alcoholic and suffer from cirrhosis or something along those lines. And so you don't have to prove 100%. What you have to prove is that there is a likelihood and that you knew there would be a likelihood. And that's the standard that they're actually going to have to meet in this particular one. I'm not suggesting that they're going to be successful, but I am suggesting that this isn't actually like way outside the bounds of what a lawsuit of this type should look like. I would hope that they're successful, but it sounds like there's two things that's going on here. One is they're going to prove that that 
The companies did it. They knew that it was addictive. But then on the back end, doesn't SPS then have to prove that it cost them additional funds because of that, because the lawsuit does have monetary value attached? Absolutely. But uh, but again, you know, what are they adding money this year for mental health counseling at the schools? So so I think that you can you can apply once you get to this level where a punitive damage is going to be actually applied. It's going to be fairly easy for them from a book standpoint to be able to apply that. I have another question for Amanda in a moment after I pass on some of the feedback from our Community Feedback Club while we send some texts out asking you what you think. Lonnie said, it's about time. I work in a school district and social media is invasive even in elementary schools. Becca from Magnolia says, no other government institutions are stepping up, so I'm glad schools are using the power they have. But John from Sammamish says it's a waste of money. Isn't it their job to prepare kids for society? Should schools sue every potential societal cause for issues they have to deal with? How about suing Pokemon or Xbox for distracting kids from their homework or text messaging from the telecom companies for shortening kids' attention span? Ed in Bremerton says, my daughters use social media to communicate with friends. Anyone being inappropriate gets blocked. They have positive in my daughter's lives. Suing them is highly inappropriate. John in the U District says, where are the parents? Why aren't Seattle and Kent Public Schools filing lawsuits against them? And then finally, a couple of listeners suggested things. Rick said schools should try to protect students from big tech's deliberate algorithmic rabbit holes. At the same time, more real counseling time needs funding, and media literacy should be taught in every single class. And then Sylvia says, I'm glad the lawsuit was filed. As a parent, I'd like to see public schools ban smartphones until high school. Uh, Amanda, do you think that we are going to see um, more uh, lawsuits like this? Mike, uh, Mike was saying this could be uh, this become widespread. I really have no idea. I, th- I think it's interesting that Seattle is the first one. Um, I think if the lawsuit we were talking about earlier gains traction, I agree with Mike that we could see more school districts suing. Yeah. You were telling me it's not clear who approached whom, by the way. Yeah. So this law firm is pretty big. They represented Seattle a couple of years ago when Seattle actually joined a bunch of school districts to sue Juul, the e-cigarette company, over, you know, teen nicotine addiction. Um, So, you know, it's not clear whether Seattle had this idea and reached out to the law firm or the law firm had the idea and reached out to Seattle. I think it's fine in either case. But, you know, I'm really curious about how this all started. Well, we'll and remember, that was a successful lawsuit as well against Jewel. Right, right. We'll watch this uh, lawsuit progress from Seattle Public Schools and Kent Public Schools and who knows who else. Um, uh, finally, I'll just let you know if you want to join in that uh, feedback club, just text the word club to 206-926-9955. And we'll send you texts occasionally asking for your opinion. The Community Feedback Club, you just text CLUB to 206-926-9955. You are listening to Week in Review on KUOW Seattle. I'm Bill Radke. And with us today on our panel, we've got Amanda Zoe from the Seattle Times and Mike Lewis from GeekWire. And we have Mike Davis here from KUOW. And Mike, you are our arts and culture reporter, and you reported this week that some of the people arrested for writing political statements outside the Seattle Police East Precinct are suing the city, calling its law, the graffiti ordinance, unconstitutional. What's going on here? Yes. Now, I will say that I am still reporting. This is new. This complaint was filed this week. Um, I'm going to talk to the city next week. So I do want to say that so people know this is not complete. I only have one side of the story at this time. Mm -hmm. But 
Uh, yeah, four people were arrested in 2021, actually during the time when the city was not allowed to jail people for nonviolent crimes because of the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. They were able to bypass that. They took these people to jail. Um, the first person wrote free protest in charcoal on eco blocks outside of the East Precinct. Just ordinary charcoal that would wash away with rain. They were arrested. Their friends got upset. They started writing other anti-police messages in children's sidewalk chalk. I got all the way up to FTP. I'm sure listeners know what that means. The mm-hmm. the thing that is interesting, it's I, not, I a, talk it's to not a nice compliment toward the police. No, yeah. not at all. It's very uncomplimentary. I talked to multiple attorneys about this case and, and just to get some legal perspective on the Constitution and how it will play out in this manner. And what there's what I'm hearing is that. The ordinance in itself is written in a really interesting way. The state also has um, a similar law, but on the state level law, if you wrote in chalk that could wash away, the state wouldn't consider that destruction of property. The state also doesn't consider any surface that you have permission to write on. You can't be jailed. In the city of Seattle, if I go to Bill Radke's house and Bill says, Mike, paint a mural on my garage and I paint that mural, Mm -hmm. the police can come arrest me, even in front of Bill. And Bill can say, hey, I said that he could do that. But according to this law, I have to actually go to court and say during trial that I have Bill's permission. And then Bill has to testify. You could arrest anybody for writing on any surface that they do not own in the city of Seattle under this ordinance. And the attorneys are saying that that in itself is an infringement on your First Amendment rights, because if I write anything, you can arrest me for it. This complaint also has pictures of SPD at uh, at events that they put on and that they posted on their social media where there is sidewalk chalk that has pro-police statements written on it. And they're in front of these and they're smiling. So the the complaint also alleges that SPD has been very selective on when they do and do not enforce this law. And before I pass it off, Hmm. just I want to say as a reporter, I got to say all of this. All of this happened in 2021. We have a different mayor right now. We have a different city attorney right now. We have a different chief of police right now. I spoken with Mayor Harrell about the current graffiti ordinance and everything that he's doing right now. And he has told me directly that it is not his plan to unnecessarily jail anyone over graffiti. In fact, what we're talking about right here with washable sidewalk chalk from conversations that I had with Mayor Harrell, this is not what he is looking to target. And he was not in office in 2021. So I don't want anybody to jump down my throat. The reporting is going to continue. More will come out. I will have these conversations. Okay. One one question for me before I open it up. Uh, to be clear, the, it's not as if uh, the graffiti uh, artists, writers, had permission from the city in the case of the precinct, the, the eco blocks in front of the precinct. But you're saying that even if a business doesn't mind, either doesn't mind graffiti or, look, we're just going to, we'll deal with it in our own way, um, the city could could arrest and prosecute even if even if a business is not is saying we're not going to press charges. Bill, I asked a former defense attorney that same question. And what he told me was if he was sitting in court and he leaned over and wrote a note to his colleague on his colleague's notepad, a police officer in that courtroom would have every legal right to arrest him on the spot. Mm-hmm. In so, that moment, so you're getting into who the who the police, uh, 
when they to, do to, and to do not against. enforce this. Yes. And in the case of them, because they were writing anti-police political statements, they are arguing that the police have not been arresting people when they write pro-police political statements. I got a quick question then. So what essentially the defense attorney, and I know he's using kind of an extreme example here. I, yes, I, I don't know of yes. any cases where that, that's actually happened. But the, the defense attorney is saying that, that you can have prohibitions against graffiti. It's the way our particular one is written that creates Absolutely. this massive legal liability is what he's saying, correct? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Um, any, Amanda, question, information, or you feel like you, you got the download? I feel like I got the download. Okay, uh, we're talking about um, this lawsuit um, against the Seattle graffiti ordinance, and in Washington State, um, the you know writing in chalk is is not going to result in arrest. This is different the the city ordinance, and um, we have seen lawyers and advocates. Um, take aim at policing that has discriminatory results as well, right? Yes. And, oh, go ahead, Amanda. Oh, yes. Uh, I was just saying, you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of attention placed on traffic stops or in Seattle, the helmet law, um, you know, even checking fare on the light rail. And people sort of say, well, when you give law enforcement you know, this much discretionary ability, it, it tends to, you know, disproportionately affect people who are poor or black. And, and this seems like a similar um, example, except it's sort of taking aim at uh, it's saying it affects people who write anti-police messages. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's just the law itself is written so that anybody that writes anything at any time on any surface that they do not own under any circumstances legally can be arrested on the spot. That's extreme. Okay, so, well, that's the claim. And uh, Mike Davis says he's going to continue to report this. And we'll see. We haven't yet heard the city's side of this. So uh, we'll keep following it. One one quick question, though. Did So when you were talking to, to Mayor Harold, did he say that this law itself is valid and needs to be rewritten? Or what was his, what was his impression as far as, I mean, an anti-graffiti ordinance does make some sense. Uh, one written like this probably doesn't make as much sense. Did he say that this thing just needs to be revisited and revised or that it needs to be eliminated or did he say anything like that at all? That's a great question. At the time that I talked to Mayor Harrell, I had not read the actual law. So I did not know that it was written this way. I am talking to Mayor Harrell again next week to talk about this complaint and how it relates to his efforts. So he has not had an opportunity to give comment since this complaint was filed a couple of days ago. Gotcha. Right. That's KOW arts and culture reporter Mike Davis. And we've got uh, we've got Amanda Zoe here. We have Mike Lewis. I'm Bill Radke. We're going to take a short break and continue with your week in review with some choices. Home or office, gas or electric, cash or card, stay or tuned. You rely on this podcast to stay informed and connected with your local community. And we rely on you. Without listener support, this show simply wouldn't exist. Be a part of the team that makes this show possible by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute. Donate at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thank you.
It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. You can watch the show if you want. On account of we stream it on YouTube and Facebook. You just search KUOW Public Radio. We've got Seattle Times General Assignment reporter Amanda Zoe with us. KUOW Arts and Culture reporter Mike Davis, I think, offered to uh, to uh, make a graffiti, some graffiti art on my garage, which is excellent. And uh, we also have uh, Geek Wire contributing editor Mike Lewis here. Mike Lewis, the American workplace just keeps on changing. And this week, two huge Seattle corporate workplaces made some big moves. Let us start with Microsoft. What is Satya Nadella doing? For yeah, this is, and there's a really good story about this on, on GeekWire, Taylor Soper's story on this. What's interesting is, so Microsoft has done something that other tech companies have done. Most famously, maybe a decade ago, a company called Evernote out of the Bay Area did this. It decided to say, you have unlimited vacation and it's changing from the standard policy of vacation to discretionary days that you can take now the upside to this of course is unlimited vacation sounds pretty attractive i think to anyone the downside i had is, a company offer me unlimited vacation once and i had to deal that with was in the terms of state a un- yeah. yeah state unemployment <laughs> department it's a long story but go on um and so and so the 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 pushback against this the upside obviously is unlimited vacation sounds great provided you have a standard by which you can meet your employment standards get your projects done blah 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 then you can go and you can take two months off in this year if your everything is done the downside is that they remanded a lot of the responsibility and how to manage that to individual managers and that is the concern in that people depending on your relationship with your manager. I mean, it's now in most big companies, it's proscribed. You don't have to worry about your relationship with your manager. You can take your vacation when you take your vacation. But in this case, now, if you have a manager who is willing to sort of create an atmosphere where you can get your projects done and you can leave, great. But if you don't, it's a very different structure. And now it's sort of, it's taking away from that proscribed thing, which in some ways is bad because it's limited, but good in that it's guaranteed. And so here is where the pushback is going to happen at a company like Microsoft. But if you want to talk about public relations from a from a and remember Microsoft already is rated as one of the top 20 by Glassdoor, what top 20 companies to work for in America just got that rating for this year. And it's been there a few times. Google other companies that do similar things have a similar rating. This is an immensely appealing thing to put on your job description, unlimited vacation. I mean, who doesn't immediately attract it by something like that? And so I think it's the, it, the proof is going to be in the details like many things like this. And I think with Microsoft, it is part of this larger push that we're no longer going to be a company that is hard on our employees, stacked ranking, dating back years, the Steve Ballmer era. We're going to be a company that cares for our workers and honestly – for society is large because remember they're pushing on low income housing in a variety of other ways. This is a very new Microsoft, at least in the last five years. Any other reactions to this Microsoft announcement? Discretionary uh, leave? Uh, that was a roller coaster that Mike Lewis just took us on. <laughs> leave it, leave it to us journalists to make something like unlimited vacation Sound have bad. a downside. Yeah. yeah, like you gave us the bad part. I think I think that it's a it's a great idea. I think especially in this environment that we're seeing right now, we're seeing workers will just up and quit when they're not happy. We're seeing quiet quit. We're seeing people that are showing up and just doing the barest of minimums. I think if we're going to have people come back <clears throat> into the office, then we're going to have to have some perks and some incentives to get them to stay there. I had not thought actually of the 
idea of the discretion. Discretionary time off sounds great. Wait a minute. Discretion. At whose discretion? At whose discretion? At whose discretion oh, is, really the, key, is the key question. Yeah. Um, okay, then let's, keeping that in discretion. mind. Discretion. Keeping uh, the Microsoft announcement in mind, we have, meanwhile, Starbucks. And what is Howard Schultz telling his, not store workers, but corporate soda workers? The corporate soda workers have to be back, come back into work on a more regimented schedule, three days a week. Uh, this is going to be moving ahead. I'm, it's not clear at this point where if it's every job classification. Uh, some of them, I think, may end up staying permanently remote, but many of them will not. And, and, Mike, and, and Starbucks has been pretty generous about the remote work uh, idea since the beginning, since remote work sort of visited us you know, pre- uh, in the early parts of the pandemic. Whether or not this is going to result in in a change uh, is interesting. I would I would say everyone at this moment in time should pay attention to this because the remote work thing the the power was in the employees a year ago, right? Yes. Everyone could demand it. Every recruiter you talked to said you don't expect to hire talented people without offering a hybrid workplace or a remote work. Layoffs have started happening. Amazon, uh, Wall Street Journal just broke a big story about eighteen thousand layoffs coming at Amazon. This the power is now switching back to the employer, and so there are the ability right now to jump in and say we're going to establish new hard policies. They're using the leverage that is available to them in the workplace and the recession. So things are changing. I think that a hybridized system is likely to stay. Certainly, at Starbucks and other big companies. But I think that the power, the sense is that the power is is sort of floating back to the corporations and away from the prospective employees. Amanda, you were nodding. Yeah, I mean, I was reading a story a couple of months ago that was sort of saying that, you know, a lot of tech CEOs really admire Elon Musk because he's sort of asking right. this question like, hey, what if we just treated our workers worse? Like there's just been years of like tech companies like bending over backwards to cater to their employees. And now the power is really switching back. I really don't know how much that affects Starbucks, though, given that it's sort of more of a retail uh, coffee company opposed to a tech company. Um, but yeah, I mean, they I think they are harnessing that leverage. Yeah, Mike, you were Mike Davis. You were reacting to that difference between corporate workers and store workers. Howard Schultz invoked that as a matter of fairness. Yeah, I just thought that that was that was one of the most ridiculous statements that I've ever read. I agree with everything that Mike is saying. Starbucks has the right to to have their workers come back if that's what they want to do. Three days a week is still hybrid work. I just don't agree with the idea of them trying to make it seem like this is one big happy family. The idea of, oh, we have the baristas working at cafes, so we're going to bring corporate back too. Let's not act like executives are now going to be at your local <laughs> Starbucks with their laptop out banging the keys. And let's not act like we don't have uh, Starbucks workers in these actual cafes all over the place trying to unionize. Don't let the union busters now step in and start trying to say we're one big happy family. If there's anything that we've learned in these times, these last couple of years, is that we are not a big happy family. There is a big difference between the corporate executives and everyone else at these companies. We are labor. We are not your friend. This is not buddy, buddy. We're, we're going to do these jobs. We're going to get these checks so that we don't die in this American capitalist system. But the way that Starbucks worded that, like they were just this big family corporation that's going to rally against these people that are fighting for the most basic of rights was laughable to me. 
I couldn't agree more. And I thought that it was really, I think I love the fact that you pointed that out because not only is it tone deaf, I think if you're working as a, uh, as a barista, but the second part of this is that what they're not talking about at Starbucks and a lot of these companies that are doing hybridized work is the struggle to find out what is success and how do you measure success in the workplace because now without people in the workplace companies like Expedia are literally rewriting what is a high-performing worker and what isn't because if you don't have them sitting there remember a lot of performance metrics and we all know this from jobs we've held based were based were personality based as much as they were performance based and so now when people are not in the office, how do you measure their success on a given task? This is what these companies are struggling with. And they're finding that it's not as easy, even though all of these, many of these companies that went remote found that they actually had decent profit margins. We remember in the pandemic, companies like Amazon were doing great when they went radically went remote without really the structure in place to do that. So it's going to be interesting watching them push back on this without really the tools in place to measure remote work as effectively as they would like, and then dealing with this sort of, I don't know what you would call it, cognitive dissonance. There's this whole idea that it, we're all in this together. Well, in, in fact, Mike, you're totally right. We're not all in this together, not in the same manner. Well, why would companies, if they don't think that they are able to measure less work or a lower quality of work because of, of remote work, why would they supposedly alienate workers uh, have to spend more on real estate, you know, and 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 have workers sitting in traffic. I I assumed that. So, are you saying that the whole idea is that these workers, they have they, these employers, the the managers and the CEOs, they have they don't know what they're doing. They're just they're just mean people who like to have like to have their <laughs> their their serfs sitting where they can watch them like a hog. That's a very uh, uh yeah. Go ahead. I can see you want to. So, talk. I wouldn't say that. That is a distillation of what I just said. But I, but, <laughs> Did but I exaggerate? <laughs> but I would say that it is difficult to come up with new standards by which to judge people, right? I mean, we all have to have standards in our workplace, you and everyone else. And so this is the thing that they've had to reconfigure because a lot of those standards, what they don't like to admit is a lot of those standards were very, very squishy in the past. They liked that person. They liked how fast they walked across the room. They liked all this sort of stuff that maybe wasn't actually. And if you had, especially if you were a person who maybe was not as socially comfortable with other people, and maybe you were assessed poorly as a result of that, just because you didn't go to the the coffee clatch or the happy hour or whatever it was you were doing, but your work product was good, these people have long complained that they were never as valued in the workplace. Well, when we switched to remote, suddenly these folks maybe saw an opportunity that, hey, maybe I'm just going to be judged by my work and not by my personality at work. And this is where everything has changed with remote work. And I was talking with the people, head of people, uh, I don't know, the chief people officer at Expedia a few months ago. And she said exactly this, like, they're having to revamp how they assess quality of work. And this is all of the many things that flow from remote work that we are going to have to figure out. Maybe it could end up being a hybridized system will be a fairer workplace than it ever has been, and not a less fair one, because we we judge too much on our face-to-face sometimes and then what the actual work product is. All right, let's, um, we've, we have a packed show because so many things to cover. I'm going to move from uh, this question of home or office to the question of gas or electric. Uh, if you're still heating your home with gas, Puget Sound Energy would like to have a word with you. The utility is 
offering uh, will offer 10,000 customers financial incentives to switch to efficient electric appliances like heat pumps and gas stoves. And Amanda, this is not a, this is not a ban on natural gas. This is just incentives, right? Right. They, yeah, I think Puget Sound uh, Energy has like a ton of customers. I, I don't have the specific number, but this is just such a small amount of them. I think it's really kind of like a pilot project as they try to um, meet their zero emission goals. Yeah, something like two million customers, I think. Yeah, yeah two million. This is going. This is a. This is interesting. And if and uh, I'm talking to you. Uh, Local 32. Uh, that's the HVAC union here in town that has been doing a lot of the quiet lobbying against this switch away because the fact is they have a whole bunch of people who installed these HVAC systems, the, the giant um, heating and air conditioning system in every big skyscraper in small buildings, big buildings all over Seattle. Many of these um, are are powered by natural gas. And the switch away from that is literally thousands of jobs and millions of dollars in income in the mix. And so how is this going to happen and how quickly is this going to happen? This is – and it, remember, there are other unions that are, that are probably in favor of this switch, you know, if you're in the electrical workers union or something along those lines. This is going to be – this is a fight that is not just going to happen in terms of uh, carbon footprint. This is a fight that's going to happen in terms of labor. And that is where it's going to really get interesting because that lobbying is happening right now on how quickly we move to this, whether or not every industry should move to this, whether or not restaurants – have to switch away from the gas furnaces that they use in every good restaurant you go into in Seattle to electric, maybe induction sort of cooking or something along those lines. This is going to be a really complicated fight, but it's hard to argue. And it's also going to then, is it going to oversubscribe the electric grid, which is, I think, a big open question right now. Oversubscribe the electric grid, meaning are we putting all or too many of our energy eggs into the electricity basket? What if the electric grid goes down? I can't just... Uh, I can't use natural gas. What if what if uh, there's not enough uh, rain and snowpack? What if are are we pulling out hydro dams? Right. And yeah. and how well does solar work? <laughs> right, right. In one of the cloudier cities in America. Yeah. Mike, any uh, comment? Question, Mike Davis. No, I guess we should all just buy wind turbines and just put them on top of our houses. It seems like everything is going electric. It, it I, I don't know. I don't cover this. This isn't my area, but I, I'm very, very curious. If if the government is pushing us towards electric cars and they want us to use electricity to power our homes, it's just, I mean, it just seems like at some point, how are we going to sustain all of this? Well, and we've also got the other issue in a state that also is pushing toward dam removal, right? Yeah. And that's a that's a major source of hydro and the Bonneville Power Authority is one of the largest uh, electrical generators in the world. So how do you move away from the hydroelectric power and but toward more electricity is going to be an interesting. It's not just a math problem. It's a social problem as well. Has anyone else noticed fancy restaurants using induction cooktops instead of gas? I was, I've seen a little bit of it, but I've not a whole a lot bit of it. it. That, Just that's a what bit, I was though. wondering. You know, where are the gourmet chefs like up in arms about? It, they were originally. when the, This has been a conversation in Seattle for the last five years, right? Yeah. And so they originally, the, the Tom Douglases, the Ethan Stoles of the world, were like, wait a minute. We cook with gas. I mean, this is what we use in our restaurants. I mean, and everyone knows from the cooking shows. You see the flames. Yeah. You see all of the, you know, it's, it's a dramatic effect. But it actually has been always regarded as 
a higher end kitchen is using gas and not electricity. And that whole eating. idea is going to change. <laughs> that, I'm not eating. I come to your restaurant and I see you <laughs> firing up the little thing that has to get red before you. You're, I'm you're not done. eating. Right. There that, you go. But, no. but in, I have an induction uh, uh, stove and there's no red. You'll be happy to know. And it's fast. And you just have to get used to, you know, I use my finger to sort of twirl around how much this pan gets vibrated and you brrr, and, yeah. and and it's 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 quiet i just made it sound loud it's not i'm i'm telling you induction is now i don't know what it, it may be more pricey i haven't I haven't priced out the difference but we were doing a little remodel put it in induction and uh and i, I maybe because i use it myself i notice it I, I wish i could remember the place on capitol hill that i just went to but, a couple months but ago. but that's also the other question is those who can't afford to switch yes, over i mean but this is also like amanda said this is a pilot project right yeah, this yeah. is actually figuring out what might work and what incentives you can apply from an from a utility standpoint to get your customers to switch but but is there isn't there a date isn't there like a finite time in which we are expected to stop emitting natural gases here 2045 right as far as carbon neutral yeah so we've got a little bit of time yeah (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the things I'm wondering, which is, you know, I think the questions about how secure our energy sources are is is really worth examining, especially, you know, with all these substation attacks we hear about across the country. Absolutely. But, you know, I I wonder if like this switched induction stoves is like going to be have to, you know, be a part of the new normal. You know, all of us have to limit our carbon a little bit. Is this going to be the like future of cooking? Right. And also that before we're going to have to leave leave uh, natural gas, but there was also a study that I didn't hear about till this week about um, the health uh, downsides of gas stoves. They, that they're even when even when you're not using them, that they uh, there's they're they're producing um, uh, problems for people with asthma, et cetera. Um, anyway, let's um, let's go. We just did uh, work or uh, office or home. We did gas or electric. Let's do uh, cash or card, because this week a King County Council member proposed a ban on cashless retailers in unincorporated parts of King County. Cities can make their own rules, but outside of the cities, stores would not be allowed to refuse cash and only take cards. Um, Mike Davis, you, you said you don't have ca- you don't use cash at all, pretty much. <laughs> what is cash, Bill? <laughs> why, why would I ever? I just tap. It's so beautiful. I tap. I've left my wallet before and it meant nothing. I, I still went. I got my coffee. I did everything. I just used my phone, Apple Pay. I tap. Now, maybe that's just, you know, me living in a little bit of privilege, but you know how annoying it is to be behind somebody that actually pulls out cash and then they're counting it out and then they got to get changed uh-huh. and then it's going to be some old guy and he's going to slip and there's going to be coins and just <laughs> raining down on us like snow. Wow. Away with the cash bill. Well, away with the cash says, and that's one reason, <laughs> right, Mike Lewis, that uh, people say it's it just slows everything down. But there are more, more arguments. First off, defend old guys who use cash, uh-huh. uh, being one of them. Uh, I don't. I actually switch around, and I agree with you. Sometimes it's nice when I've gone out, forgotten my wallet. I can use Apple Pay on my phone. I think that that's great. I would say that. So this is an interesting thing, and it affects. And, and because I'm a I'm a bar owner, so I'm really familiar with the service industry end of things. Here is one of the things that 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 people need to understand: the tipping system, if on your credit card, is is completely trackable. And this is one of the reasons to push for this. You have to. There's no real way around not declaring your tips. Cash tips are not trackable, and so many people in the service industry, 
I don't know, but I'm guessing many people in the service industry don't necessarily declare 100% of their cash tips. They declare all of their credit card tips. That's just a guess on your That's part. That's just a guess on my part. Obviously. I can't speak with no personal knowledge. Sure. So, so what happens then is that, is that your taxable income actually goes up when you are on a cashless system. Many times those cash tips just end up with the person who you were trying to tip. Or they're divided among the staff if it's a tip pooling thing or something along those lines. And so the government has a strong incentive to be able to push for more cashless transactions because it can track 100% of those. It can't track. The track, when you get tips, cash tips, you, are, you self-report in an honor-based system. And again, I'm not saying there's any dishonorable people out there. I don't no. know what percentage of tips are counted, but I suspect that it's not 100% yeah. when they're on the cash end of things. And that is one of the other drivers of this. The second thing is employers like the idea of not actually having cash in the building because that can sometimes make, in certain environments, things a little safer. No one's going to come in and rob a building, that, rob a place, likely, that does not have cash in it. And so you do those two things and you can create an environment. Okay, that, but but Amanda, but there's so, a downside people, to it as well. Some people aren't using cards, right? Right, They're just using cards. That's one thing I wanted to point out, which is that you know King County Council, this council member, isn't saying no more credit cards allowed at my establishment. You know, right. they're saying. You know, you can still do all these things that we like, you know, the mm-hmm. tipping, the seamless checkout, but you also have to accept cash. Yeah. And the reason that is, is that, you know, they're citing research that shows that people who use cash are older adults, people who don't have access to the tr- traditional banking system. Lower income folks exactly, use it at a higher exactly. percentage. Absolutely. And, and I will say that this year I switched to a wallet that does not have space for cash. I don't like it. What? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, 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 I use... I would say, and I can speak from speak from from a bar standpoint, eighty eight percent of our transactions are credit card. I mean, it it really is. And there's a couple of companies. Shilling Cider is a good one. One of the first in Seattle to jump on purely cashless system in their in their tasting room. I think in Fremont, and they said it's been fabulously successful for them. Now they're dealing with a different income strata. And and demographic maybe than every neighborhood is dealing with. What about Mike Davis? The option of um, one of these reloadable cash cards. You don't have to have a, you know a, a bank or a credit card, but it's uh, but at least it's not the 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 uh, wads of bills and the shower a snow shower <laughs> of coins that you described. Pennies from heaven. Right. I, I mean, I think it's possible. And I think that having those reloadable cards is is a viable option. I would also point out that, like, you know, folks who use EBT, that's also on a card now. So I think that, yes, you can. I think that if you really want to dig into what Amanda mentioned and what this King County Council member is trying to get at is that, there is going, there are going to be people that are not going to have access. There's going to be people that won't have access to banking. I don't think that it's going to be feasible to get every single person a reloadable card. I think, you know, um, we still have people in our society that are unhoused. If you get, I never swiped my card for someone that was like panhandling or that like needed something, right? In those situations, if you have some cash, you give it to them and I'm sure they just go spend the cash. There will always be a necessity to have cash. So I don't I don't want to be a jerk and speak against that. It's just wildly inconvenient for privileged folks like well, myself. Mike Davis, for just for that reason, I assume that there was a federal law requiring 
uh, businesses to accept it's legal tender. It literally says, says so, it on the bill. Says right. so on the money. Yes. <laughs> I have this money. Give me something in exchange for this money. But it's, that, no that part law. blew my mind though, Bill, because that was the first thing that I thought too. You walk in there and like you just you can't use cash. Now I've seen it opposite. One of my favorite restaurants doesn't take cards. So I always will have to go to the ATM and I still go there all the time. I love those guys, but it's Is like this Ty Tom across the street from us. No, I'm talking about Ty Tom. Yeah. I love Ty, Tom. <laughs> Ty Tom forces me to get cash. That's Every why, time that's I go there, it's the same. Cash. I agree. Yeah, but I've walked to, uh, what's the place, 8 o'clock? Even though the name is A-T-E o'clock, <laughs> and I'm not trying to subsidize that name, but it's a Thai restaurant that, that lets me use my card. I'm sorry, Thai Tom. Okay, we've gotten far. We've left the listeners behind. Sorry. This is a university <laughs> district conversation we're having now. Uh, okay, we've, we've got to take another break because uh, we still uh, uh, want to see if we even have time what anyone's interested in with the legislative session that just started this week. And whether we do or don't have time for that, let's see what there was to smile about this week. Let's take a break and come right back with more Week in Review. KOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. We are live streaming the show on Facebook and YouTube. Just search KOW Public Radio. And you can just listen, if you like, to me and my journalist panel for today. GeekWire's Mike Lewis, The Seattle Times' Amanda Zoe, and KUOW's Mike Davis. We've got uh, just about seven minutes left in the show. So let's see what we have to say about the Washington legislative session that began this week. It's going to go on. I think, what is it, hundred and five days or something. So there's plenty of legislative session to go for today. I just want to know, is there any one issue, Amanda, that you're particularly interested in? You'll be following this session. Yeah, I'm really interested in sort of the promise of missing middle housing. You know, this is the bill that would make it easier to build duplexes, triplexes, um, you know, just generally increase our housing stock, you know, for, for buildings, not like big apartment buildings. Um, it looks like there might be movement on it this year, and I'm interested in following what happens. What prevents it? What prevent? What has prevented that movement? Well, last year um, it was the I think the Association of Washington Cities. They sort of represent you know small towns, so, sort of like the ability for cities and towns to make their own laws, uh, and they sort of um, I think oppose the bill. Yeah, plenty of people, as we all know, um, don't want their don't want their towns to become denser for uh, for various reasons, and then we argue about whether those reasons are genuine or not. Um, Mike Davis, is there a an issue you're particularly uh, following in the legislature related to that issue? I want to see if there's going to be affordable housing. I think uh, in Seattle in particular, yeah, more housing would be great, but it would be nice if that housing would be made affordable so that everybody can live there. People that work here can live here. People that grow up here can stay here. So I'm hoping that affordable housing remains a part of this big picture. We have a reporter at KUOW, Joshua McNichols, who really has been covering housing and density. And I, I asked him, look, I, I hear the argument. I hear people say if, that if we allow more development, then these greedy developers are going to come in and they're going to uh, uh, make shiny, expensive homes that demand top dollar and things will get more expensive. And then I hear people say, well, the more units that come online, the less expensive overall right. uh, housing will be. And Josh, I don't, okay, I'm, I, I, I'm nervous to speak for him. My understanding of what he told me was that, that he seemed convinced by the research that shows that more density, more housing units equals 
lower price overall. I hope that that's true, Bill. I would encourage listeners to do a Google search. I had a very interesting conversation on Seattle Now with a Seattle Times reporter, Heidi, whose last name I'm not going to butcher. But we talked about the the technology software that has been artificially boosting up rents all throughout our city. So without some sort of regulation, it's hard for, for a cynic like myself to imagine more housing equaling affordable housing. Hmm. Well, and the other issue regarding affordable housing that is not being addressed in the legislation right now is property ownership and who owns property. I mean, look at the look at the number of home sales in America that are being that are being houses that are being purchased by investment companies Mm -hmm. that are not being actually. But this is part of the housing stock issue from the Airbnb issue to other investment companies. Anyone who owns a house in Seattle who hasn't received that letter saying, are you interested in selling your house? And it's always an investment company. It's not an individual who's writing you this letter. Restrictions on on these big companies, investment companies buying up affordable housing stock is something that the is something that is not being looked at, but I don't know that we can even address the problem until that problem, that specific problem, is actually addressed. But what I was interested in, as far as I mean, if you want to know what I'm tracking in the yes. the affordable housing thing, to me is fascinating, and I love paying attention to that. But given that everyone jumped in and stole that one, my other <laughs> one is this: I think the the laws regarding disclosure of what the lawmakers are doing. Are, the Seattle Times just did a terrific editorial on this when you referred to the gaslighting earlier. Yes. Um, the idea that the let lawmakers in Washington State can, under this sort of larger rubric of legislative business, can shield us from actually seeing what's happening with tax dollars and with money and decisions that are being made regarding policy and who is actually funding these lawmakers and then the connections potentially with those laws being passed. The notion that you would have any ability to shield us from actually looking at that by us. I don't mean us as reporters. I mean us because these are just public records acts that anyone can access. That kind of that lack of protection and what the what the what the state house for ostensibly being a relatively progressive state, Washington's public uh, disclosure laws are not terrific and they're not they've never been enforced very very aggressively. What the what the Legislature is going to do regarding that. I think is going to all, so many stories flow from that for KUOW, for GeekWire, for Seattle Times, for everyone. We depend on that to let you know what's going on. And as they try and narrow that, I think that's a that is a crisis in democracy, not just a crisis in accessible documents. And we're not we don't have time to uh, to uh, debate this now, but I just want to um, sort of give give the legislators side of it, which briefly, I'm told that they, they're they saying that you can't legislate if you don't have the ability to privately have conversations, float ideas, trial balloons, do a little horse trading. That's one of the obje- objections I've heard sure. to this. Sure. I mean, but, but you know the way it is. It, like, you'd write a law too broadly, and you can put everything in that category. Yeah. Uh, we're, we've got a minute and a half left, and I haven't even asked you what made you smile this week. Um, who wants to give us something to smile about before we back out of here? I'll go first. Um, yeah. I'm smiling about the story we had in the Seattle Times this week that showed that our traffic has not returned to pre-pandemic levels, unlike other cities. Mm-hmm. I think less cars on the road is a good thing. Yeah, so the commute's great. Workers, go back to the office. <laughs> no, no I, I, that wasn't. That was uh, Howard Schultz talking. Um, okay. Yes, I've noticed that too. We've all noticed that, right? Yes. It's a better. It's a better. I rush think it's out. fantastic. Mike Davis, anything smile worthy? 
Eugene Smith III, a.k.a. Geno Smith, leading us into battle. Seahawks in the playoffs. We are going to shock the 49ers. I'm so excited. I'm smiling ear to ear. And that's not a Sunday. That that game is tomorrow, uh, Saturday. Tomorrow. Everybody has to watch. We need all of our collective energy to push us over the top. Mike Davis reports on arts and culture for KUOW. Amanda Zoe is a general assignment reporter at the Seattle Times. Mike Lewis is contributing editor at GeekWire. And I just have time to say that I smile every time you do the show. And thanks for uh, catching us up on the week. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Okay, we've got the Week in Review produced by Kevin Kniestet with social media and live streaming assistance from Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu and Bernard Wallet running the board. I thank you all. Thanks for listening and see you next week. I'm Bill Radke.